All right, Happy New Year. How are we? You guys doing good? All right. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 3 is where we're going to kick off this morning. Today's a standalone message to prepare us for a fast, which I will explain in uh, a little bit over the course of the message that we're going to venture together as a church beginning next week. Actually, next Monday, January 11th, a 10-day fast through the, 12th, through the 20th. And so I thought this Sunday, on the first Sunday of the year, I'd take some time to kick off and explain uh, what we're going to be doing here in a week or so. And as you're finding Matthew chapter 3, let me also mention a couple other things that we, um, as Reynolds mentioned, we are uh, doing some LifePoint leader training, which LifePoint groups are our small groups that we uh, are vital to the lifeblood of our church. Usually we have two semesters, January through June or so, and then we kick back up in the fall through December. We're postponing the beginning of this semester until February because I want us to do some things together as a church in the next week where we set aside our hearts and minds to pray and fast and not really get caught up in um, forming new groups or connecting or getting together to eat. And so um, we're going to just push it back until February. If you're newer to the church and you're wondering about connecting with a LifePoint group, we'll be advertising all that beginning in February. And then secondly, I want to let you know that next week we're going to be starting a series of messages on the New Testament letter, Paul's letter to the Colossians. It is probably, along with Romans and Galatians, um, (laughs) my favorite book in the Bible. I guess I have three. But um, the reason it's so dear to my heart is because it speaks about the supremacy of Christ in all things. And there are some things in those four little chapters that we desperately, desperately, desperately need to hear as modern day Americans. So we're going to begin that next Sunday. We're going to work our way through the letter of Colossians uh, for however long it takes us, probably through the spring. We are creatively entitling that series of messages, Colossians. So um, I'm really excited about that, Uh, and I would encourage you to begin to read Colossians, and let's just as a church sink our our teeth deep into that beautiful, rich letter that magnifies Christ in all things. But today we're going to take a look out of a passage in Matthew chapter 3 and 4, and use that as a springboard for a message about us as a church fasting in a week or so for about 10 days. And so if you have a Bible, I'm going to read out of Matthew chapter 3 and the end of the chapter and then into 4. And, and then I'm going to talk about what we're going to do as a church. But before we do that, let me ask God to help us and to bless us. Lord, thank you for the new year, for your mercies that are new every morning. Lord, it is very easy to get into the habit of religion and cultural Christianity and to just come and start going to church or to make a New Year's resolution to do something a little bit better in 2010 than we did in 2009. Lord, would you give us the grace to snap us out of that? We don't need another church service or a few songs and a message for functionality, but we desperately need to hear from you and we need to come face to face with the creator of all things this morning. Lord, I am very aware of my, uh, my total inability 
in and of my own effort to come up with anything helpful to say to these people that I love dearly. But I am more than I am aware of my inability, I am aware of your grace and the empowerment of your Holy Spirit that has filled me, my salvation, and now is in this room today. So Lord, I'm asking you to draw a straight line today with a crooked stick, me being that crooked stick. Lord, I pray as we talk about a topic today about fasting and setting our hearts aside to focus on you, I pray that that specific topic would not cause us to lose the grandeur and the beauty and the depth and the all-consuming importance of the gospel, that we are fallen, that we are born separated from you in sin by nature and by choice, and that each person in this room, regardless of whether they grew up in a church or grew up very far away from you, we all are born separated from you, and we need your grace. We need Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the Son of God, fully God, yet fully man, who came and lived among us and lived a perfect life, and then took the penalty that should have been ours. He took your wrath and your justice and your ferocious righteousness, And he bore it on a cross, not just for the terrorists in the Middle East or for the Roman soldiers or for the rebellious Jews, but for me and for every person that would call upon him and see him as the lone and sole sacrifice for their sins. And then, Lord, you also caused Jesus not just to die for us and become a sacrifice and a substitute in our place, but you, you, through your powerful Holy Spirit, resurrected him, triumphing over death and sin and all of its consequences. And so, God, tune our hearts into that now that that is the most important thing in the world and only those that trust and believe and put their faith and embrace that truth as the treasure of their lives are born again and live with you for eternity. So God, again, as we talk about fasting, undergird all of this talk with the message of the gospel. And I pray that you would do two things. For those in this room that already know that news and have embraced it as the treasure of their life, would you cause us to see it more clearly and would it cause us to run more quickly for you? And for those that have not received that, God, would you, as Peter says, would you, not because of our effort, but would you cause that person to be born again through the living and abiding Word of God? And now help us as we read your Scripture. Make Jesus more clear to us and blow through this place with your Holy Spirit. Take a torch, Father, to the glaciers of our hearts. I pray it in Jesus' name, our great Savior and King. Amen. All right, let's go. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to pick up on verse 13. And this is the inauguration, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He, as I'm sure most of you are familiar, lived for about 30 years before he began to 
launch his public ministry, and the first thing that he does is that he submits himself to baptism by his cousin, John the Baptist. Not He wasn't denominationally a Baptist. He was a baptizer, so if you're a Baptist, don't have any little pride like, yeah, <laughs> we were the first. John the Baptist, his cousin, he submits to his water baptism and then the Holy Spirit comes upon him and anoints him for ministry and then he does something that we're going to do at least partially here in a week. He fasts as the Spirit leads him away into the wilderness to be tempted. So let's read Matthew 3 verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him, meaning John the Baptist. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Listen to this. I'll read it slowly. Think on this scene now. Then Jesus, God the Son, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Verse 4. But he answered, It is written. He quotes from a passage in Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I've got three things that I want to talk to you about today. First, I'm going to make three quick little observations about this text. Then I'm going to make three points about why we are fasting as a church. And then we're going to make a few points about how we are going to fast as a church. Okay, so three quick little thoughts about this text. Three points about why we are fasting as a church. And then a few thoughts about how we are going to do this as a church. And then we are going to, as is our custom on the first Sunday of the month, receive the Lord's Supper, communion together as a church on the first Sunday. So a couple little observations about this text that we need to get our minds into before we use it as a launching pad. Number one, I'm just struck, and I don't want us to miss the humility of Jesus in allowing himself to be baptized by his cousin John, and then, then going away, allowing the Spirit of God to lead him into the wilderness to be tempted on our behalf. That is unbelievably humbling and to think that Jesus inaugurates his ministry not with a fancy website or a bunch of publicity or a bunch of talk about how he's going to do it a whole lot better than anybody else but he he kicks off his ministry by letting his creation baptize him contrast that with the arrogance and the pride of much of our efforts in Christianity and church life today. The second thing that, that, in addition to the humility of Jesus, that jumps out to me is the, is the very fact that Jesus allowed himself 
to be tempted and in fact suffers. Because we're Americans and because most of us have been seduced by this culture of comfort, we have a very anemic theology of suffering in our culture. If you turn on most Christian TV, which, by the way, I do not recommend, and I'm not being sarcastic or a smart aleck, I'm just saying most of it is absolute rubbish. Be very, very wary of most of what you see on TBN and, and many other channels. But Jesus, Jesus, he goes through, he voluntarily goes through suffering. And so the thing that strikes me here is that we, I think, have to come to grips with the fact that we have a very anemic view of suffering. Jesus moves into suffering. The, the, the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit, is intentionally moving Jesus into suffering. But most of us have subconsciously grown up in a culture where we have this sort of unspoken theology that suffering is some sort of sign or an indication that we're not living a faith-filled, victorious life. And the balance of Scripture is completely 180 degrees opposed to that line of thinking. In fact, First Peter chapter 4, starting around verse 12, I'm not going to read it, but I encourage you to become familiar with that text, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 or so, it says, Don't be surprised that this fiery trial has come upon you. Because it may very well be coming upon you directly to give glory to God. And then he goes on to make a qualifying statement. He says, don't, don't, don't let yourself be tempted or don't let yourself suffer because you're sinning. In other words, don't, don't, don't do this because you're a thief or a murderer or a meddler. But, but know and expect suffering. But it's very difficult for us where we have heat and air conditioners and SUVs and leather seats and TV channels and um, cable networks, some of which do not carry the NFL network. And you remember that from a couple of weeks ago and restaurants and people to wait on us. It's very difficult for us to even engage and think about how Jesus often leads his people directly into suffering so that they would glorify his name even in their suffering. That's the second observation. The third is, is that, listen, this is really striking now. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And to prepare for his earthly ministry, to prepare for the temptation in the wilderness, he fasts. He fasts. So if Jesus being God is preparing himself for his ministry... By fasting, how much more should we make this means of consecration to God available to us? So what is fasting? Fasting is, if you didn't grow up in a church culture or you have no idea what we're talking about, fasting, and we have a definition on the screen, is a period of time in which we go without food or drink or, and we'll qualify this here when we talk about how we're going to do it, or some other comfort or convenience because, and we'll talk about this again a little bit later, for some of you it may be very easy to go without food or drink. But it's a period of time in which we go without food or drink, not just so that we can be religious and check a, a thing of, yes, I, I have denied the flesh, but so that we might set our hearts and minds and souls and bodies and life more fully on God. It is a time when we deny ourselves food or drink or some creature comfort so that we would tune our hearts and our flesh and our mind into God. If Jesus 
felt like he needed to do it to prepare for his ministry than at the beginning of a new year, I can't imagine anything more appropriate for us to do than to, as a church, set aside a time of fasting. So three points now as to why we are fasting as a church. Why are we fasting? The first reason that we are fasting is to reveal our hearts. We're fasting to reveal our hearts. Um, When we kick this off next Monday, and I'll talk about here in some more detail, but we're taking a very light fast. We're going to fast meats and sweets, and we're going to read Daniel chapter 1 in just a second, where uh, Daniel chose not to eat the king's delicacies, but he ate only fruits and vegetables. But what happens when you begin to deny yourself something, whether it be meat or whether it be TV or whether it be the Internet or whatever, is you begin to reveal and see this longing in you for the thing that you are depriving yourself from. And so as we are fasting, we need to be asking ourselves some questions. And these questions are, what are we controlled by? Like, what drives us? What are we slaves to? What are we hungrier for more God or chicken breasts or steaks or Facebook or ESPN or whatever. Fasting reveals our hearts. We live in a culture where we're daily pumped the malnutritious food of a broken culture and we actually can get into this mode where we think like, how could I go without? How could I really, like, how could I, like, Brad, I mean, don't you know that American Idol is starting back up and there's a two-hour Jack Bauer kicking it off season seven or whatever it is? I mean, seriously? How can we do Facebook? I'm like, I need I, I email. Tell, tell, how can I get through a day without texting somebody? Or how can I get through a day without a chicken... Chimichanga. <laughs> and if you don't know what a chimichanga is, about six months ago we went through a little deal on what a chimichanga is. I grew up on the Mexican border. A chimichanga is actually a lot like an enchilada. And an enchilada is a lot, it's a lot like a taquito, which is also a lot like a flauta. It's also a lot like a tostito. But anyway, it's just, it's just, if you didn't grow up near Mexico, it's tough to explain. But I mean, how can we go without meat? How can we go without coffee? And how can we go without this? So, so the first thing that we're wanting to do is we're wanting to reveal to ourselves the things that, that absolutely just we are, that we are in need of. And it shouldn't cause condemnation, but it should cause us to hunger and to realize how dependent we really are on God for all things. So we're fasting to reveal our hearts. And what we will see will not all be good. Um, We will fail in our fast. Um, We will sneak sweets maybe late at night after our spouse has gone to bed. And there will be an opportunity for condemnation to come in. Um, Or maybe we'll wake up early and heat up that frozen chicken breast. But this gives us an opportunity to confess and repent. And even as we fail periodically through this fast, it will help us realize how desperately we need God. So we're fasting to 
to reveal our hearts. Secondly, we are fasting to help us pray more effectively for God's purpose and wisdom. This is a, I believe this is going to be a very big year for us as a church. My hope is that as much as I love this schoolhouse and the memories that we have accumulated here over the past four and a half years, my hope and expectation is is that this will be a year when we move to another location that we will be in 24-7. Nothing's final. We don't know that for certain. We've got some things in the works that hopefully maybe we'll be able to tell you about. Maybe those things will fall flat on their face and we'll be disappointed and we'll have to start off from scratch. I don't know. But it will be a big, it'll be a big year. We're growing. We've got a lot of kids. We need to add staff. We've got things to do. We've got ministries to help. We've got things to start. We've got a lot to go on this year. This is a big year for us. Every year is a big year, but this is a big year for us as a church. It's a big year for you and me as individuals. Can you believe that 10 years ago it was the whole Y2K thing? Can you believe that? I mean, I, I I was just recollecting the other day. I was... You know, in Walmart, I think it was the December 31st, and I remember 10 years ago I was buying some extra canned goods, some water, and some bullets for my gun. And I was really kind of thinking, it could all go down tonight. <laughs> and that, that, was, that was 10 years ago. Boom. I was reading a couple of weeks ago out of the Psalms, and the psalmist said, Lord, help me to know the length of my days, how quick they are. 10 years ago. This is a big year for us. And in big occasions and momentous times, it helps us to set our hearts aside in prayer and fasting. That's what the early church did. Acts chapter 13 is a great picture of that. And we'll have this up on the screen. You don't need to flip there. Acts chapter 13. Let me read to you a couple scriptures or a couple verses out of this passage. Really, really important. What's happened here is the church has formed. The day of Pentecost has happened, of course, in Acts chapter 2. The early disciples are taking the message of Jesus out to the Roman Empire. The church is blowing up. I mean, it is thousands of people are being saved literally on a daily basis, it seems like. And the church, even in the midst of Roman persecution, the church is growing leaps and bounds. Stephen, the first martyr other than Jesus, is stoned in Acts chapter 8. And, and then Saul, a chapter later, gets, gets, gets knocked off of a horse by Jesus who makes a return visit back down to earth to go one-on-one with Saul, who later becomes Paul, and to tell him to stop persecuting his church and to take the gospel into the Roman Empire, which he does. And the persecuted church is absolutely blowing up like a mushroom cloud. And now Jews and Gentiles are getting saved, and the church meets together, and they're beginning to think about their organization. And in this place called Antioch, which is one of the first churches, the first place that they were actually called Christians, there's this sort of this all-star cast of people gathering together. All of the disciples, most of them are kind of meeting there and Saul and Barnabas are there. Saul, before he started to be called Paul in the scriptures. And in Acts chapter 13, we see the early church at a very critical juncture like we are and what they do. It's very, very informative stuff. So let me read Acts chapter 13. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul, who is later referred to as Paul. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, 
the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And what the rest of the book of Acts records is Paul and Barnabas and their missionary journeys about how the gospel just blew up in the Roman Empire. And that's the reason that we're here today, because of what happened there in that meeting, that prayer meeting and that fasting meeting, where this early church at a momentous time in their history set aside time. To concentrate, consecrate themselves to God. So we, the second reason, back to it, we are fasting to help us more effectively seek God's purposes and wisdom for our lives as individuals, for our marriages, versus parents, for our ministry here as a church, and for our direction. We're bringing our hearts together to do that. But it's very important that we realize that fasting is not, as we seek God as we fast, that fasting is not a way in which we manipulate God. Okay, we've got we to go into this with a, with a good attitude. It's not us saying, okay, we're going to do this for 10 days. We're just going to give up yard bird and steaks. And we're going to all of a sudden at the end of this, jump out of a jack-in-the-box and say, okay, God, now you've got you've to do something for us, God. Come on, God. Now, see what we did? We gave up Facebook for a week. Move, Trinity. Move on our behalf. I mean, come on, really? Really? No, that's not our attitude at all. Romans 11.35 says that we can't put God into our debt. God doesn't... He doesn't need to be repaid for our efforts. This isn't a manipulative prosperity, goofball, gospel, crazy, works-based, religious effort. This is us setting our hearts on God, clearing our hearts of the clutter, and listening to God together as a church and as individuals for His wisdom and purpose. A good way to think of it is, is it's like putting our sails up. The wind of the Spirit of God is always blowing. Always. Fasting and praying, along with other disciplines where we give ourselves to God as a way of putting our sails up. And the third, finally, why we are fasting as a church. First, to reveal our hearts. Second, to help us pray more effectively for God's purpose and wisdom. And third, and this is important, we're praying for more of God. Not for more of his miracle bread. We're not praying for God to drop something on us like he did the Israelites and their murmuring and grumbling in the wilderness and recounted in Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're not praying again so that we would manipulate God. We are praying so that we would connect more deeply with the heart of God at a very strategic time in our lives as individuals and our life corporately as a church. Listen to this. Psalm 73, verse 25 says, the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion 
ever. We're not praying for a building. We're not praying for more staff. We're not praying for financial blessing. We're not setting aside our heart and fasting so that God will give us something that we need. What we need is more of God. And what we need is less of this world. And so we are fasting to remind ourselves to separate ourselves from stuff. Because stuff is killing us. TV is killing us iPods are killing us. Fancy stuff is killing us. The internet is killing us. Food and full refrigerators is killing us. Shopping at the Gap or J. Crew or Old Navy sale rack or fill in whatever Joseph A. Bank with their sale after sale after sale is killing us. <laughs> Breakfast at Panera. The chicken salad at O'Charlie's where they have those little cranberries and that awesome balsamic vinaigrette dressing is killing us. Of course, we know that all those things intrinsically in and of themselves are not evil and are God's blessings to us, of course. But when we let those things grip our hearts... And when they combine together, create this river of culture that drives us away from God. At times, we need to lift our head up above the current and say, God, we need you and not your stuff that you've given us. So we're fasting for more of God, not for more of his blessing. So, how are we going to fast? Remember what a fast is. A fast is... A setting aside of food or drink or some other comfort or convenience for a period of time so that we might set our hearts more fully on God. This is the first time we've done this as a church, and so I thought for us to just go cold turkey, no pun intended, no food at all, it might be a little drastic for us. And so I was wanting to incorporate as many of you and to encourage us as a church and to kind of take baby steps in our first venture corporately, I thought it would be appropriate for us to do what is commonly called the Daniel Fast. Where does this come from? It comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, we read about this young man, Daniel, and four, three of his friends who have been taken captive by the Babylonian Empire, by King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, this happens a couple hundred years before what we just got done studying in Nehemiah for the past fall of 09. And in Daniel chapter 1, this young, bright man, Daniel, refuses King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king's delicacies, so as to not pollute himself with that culture that can take you like a current, like a riptide. And he says no to those delicacies, and he, and he offers an alternative. And he says, instead of that, I'm going to eat just vegetables. I'm going to refuse those delicacies. I'm just going to eat vegetables and give me 10 days and my three boys here, and let's see how we come out on the end of this. And so let me read in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion 
in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, verse 12, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. This is where we get this idea of the Daniel fast from. And then later on, on two other occasions, Daniel fasts again in the book of Daniel, one time for 21 days and then another time for an unspecified amount of time. Unlike Jesus, who what we read in Matthew chapter 3, who seemingly abstained from all food, we are going to enter in kind of the shallow end here and do a Daniel fast. So four different um, ways that we are going to fast together as a church. And then some closing thoughts and we'll receive communion together. We're going to fast as Daniel did in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to, I'm asking us to avoid meats and sweets. It's going to be pretty simple. Here this week on our website, and we'll email it out to you, and we will have it available next Sunday. I've got a couple folks that are assisting me put together a guide, a few uh, among us that are vegetarians like 365 days a year. I'm Jenny Horde, and a few other folks are helping us get together some some recipes, some diet suggestions, a list of foods. We're not just going to throw you out there and say, figure it out. But we're going to try and abstain from meats and sweets. Now, for some of you, that may be very, very easy. Some of you may already be living a relatively kind of vegetarian lifestyle. So there's some other things that you may want to consider fasting from. TV. The Internet. Facebook. Texting. Recreation. Buckle your seatbelts now. Coffee. I know. I know. I know. It'll be miserable. We'll be agitated. We'll have that foggy headache all day. But, but maybe it'll remind us that God is the one who sustains us and how addicted we are to some drug to wake us up in the morning. Caffeine. You're a smoker. Cigarettes, tobacco. Now, let me just mention something here. Um, that's kind of, kind of in the evangelical culture of Christianity. It's like we hang this sort of thing on nicotine and tobacco use and smoking as if it's like the one thing that you know you got to hide from everybody. Seriously, I mean, smoking's horrible for you, and you should quit it. But I mean. We should stop eating at Fat Freddy's three times a week too, and we should we should stop eating chocolate late at night, and we should stop being a, drinking, you know, going through the Starbucks drive-through four times a day. And come on, let's not hang a, a, a little religious emphasis on cigarettes and tobacco. All right, that's just silly. It's horrible for you. 
but shows all the other destructive things we do. <laughs> okay? Now, don't read into this an endorsement of smoking. <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah. In fact, I need to go out right now and light it up. No, that's not. <laughs> and if this, if this causes you to gnash your teeth, then you might be struggling with legalism. But if you're struggling with smoking, look, you can be a Christian and struggle with smoking. I mean, come on. Is smoking and tobacco use the one thing that we're hanging our hat on while everybody that's bashing against that is sinning and gluttony and downloading porn? Come on. We need to have grace for one another, don't we? (laughs) Come on. So stop smoking. Brad, stop eating Cheetos late at night. Stop blowing two hours on ESPN.com. Come on. Have grace. Non-essential. Okay, so we've got TV, Internet, Facebook, texting, recreation, caffeine, cigarettes, tobacco, alcohol. Again, we're not, we're not teetotalers here. That's another thing. I'm, I'm really busting up the legalists today, but um, alcohol is an opportunity for sin and destruction in many of our lives. But I don't think that that means that those of us that can handle it well and appropriately need to abstain from alcohol totally. But maybe if you're the type of person that needs like to have a beer at night just to take the edge off or a glass of wine at night just to kind of calm you down, maybe that's an indication that you need to fast that. Right? Now, let me also qualify this. I know I'm getting into some murky waters here. Cigarettes and beer. All right, good. (laughs) But listen, if you're under the age... The legal age, the Bible says in Romans chapter 13 that we should submit to legal authority. So if you're messing around with alcohol and you're underage, you're sinning, stop it. If you have alcoholism in your family and you're messing around with alcohol, it is very likely that that is a destructive door in your life and you should shut it. If you're a Christian and you, by your conscience and by your wrestling with the Spirit, have have come to the conclusion, which I believe can be a biblical conclusion, that you are free to drink alcohol and not be under the influence, be drunk in any way, fine, do it, but don't let it be a stumbling block to somebody else, whether they be a weak Christian or a non-Christian. And so I, on occasion, will enjoy a glass of wine. I think beer tastes like battery acid. I don't get it. But on occasion, I think wine tastes good to me, but you would never see me drinking wine out in a restaurant because I I could just see it happening. Jennifer and I would be at Carabas finishing up a big plate of pasta fajoule, and then somebody walks in, and I'm sitting with a glass of wine, like, isn't that the pastor at Crosspoint? Oh, yeah, no, I mean, come on. So maybe you need to fast alcohol. Maybe you need to fast alcohol. And the last thing, maybe you need to fast non-essential purchases and shopping. Are we not addicted to more stuff? Aren't we? The internet, (laughs) Amazon.com, has opened up a whole avenue of this to us. And again, those things aren't bad. The sale rack at Old Navy is not the devil. The list of suggested theological books that just come so tantalizingly across my screen on Amazon.com, those are not the enemy. But when I sink myself into them and when I give myself to them without wisdom, it can, even in a good thing, it can draw our hearts away from God. Just like chicken and steak and fish, candy. So we're... 
fasting meats and sweets. We're fasting, secondly, for 10 days. We're going to start January 11th, next Monday. And we're going to fast for 10 days until January 20th. Next Sunday, we'll have these helpful guides to help us kind of with food lists. We'll email all that all out this week so that you'll get it. We're going to fast for 10 days. Thirdly, we're going to combine it with prayer. We're not just doing this as a religious exercise to see whether we can get through it. We're going to combine it with prayer. We're going to have a couple of set-aside prayer gatherings at the point on the next two Sunday nights, and then maybe creatively in somebody's home on Wednesday nights in that span there. Uh, we're starting at the 11th, but I think we'll kick it off with prayer next Sunday, January 10th through the 20th. There will be two Sunday nights in there and two Wednesday nights. We can't use the point during Wednesday nights because the youth meet there, and we don't want to disrupt their uh, get-togethers, but maybe we'll, we'll, we'll put all this out. We'll have a couple places where we can gather in homes and, and pray and maybe have a big salad or something and get together and pray. And so we're going <laughs> to I didn't mean that to be funny. I was serious about that. Um, so we're going to fast meats and sweets. We're going to fast for 10 days, and we're going to combine it with prayer. And then finally... We're going to read through the Gospel of John together, starting on uh, January 11th, Monday, through the end of the month, which will take, take us through past that 10-day fast. But there's 21 chapters in John, and I want us to, as a church, be reading a chapter a day, ask you to read a chapter a day. I'm going to do a video blog on the website every day, just some thoughts to help guide us and encourage, encourage us in that. So we're going to do that together. So we're going to fast. We're going to attempt to fast meats and sweets or whatever thing that the Spirit of God is going to lay on your heart. You've got a week to prepare for that. We are going to fast for 10 days as a church corporately, and then we're going to combine it with some prayer gatherings and then we're going to read through the Gospel of John together. And before I end, let me just say, let's do this. I mentioned it earlier. Let's avoid legalism, guys. When we inevitably fail in this, let's let it cause us to realize how dependent we are on the grace of God. Let's remember to avoid legalism. Let me read this passage in John, and then we're going to take communion together in John chapter 6. In this chapter that we'll read in the sixth day of our fast, uh, John, uh, Jesus has done some pretty incredible things. He, has, uh, he starts the chapter off by feeding 5,000 people. After that, he walks on water, and then he delivers a really difficult sermon. And he says that, you know, okay, you guys are here because I did these really miraculous things, but now you've got to sink your teeth into the, the essence of who I am. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which was a symbol, Jesus was saying, a metaphor for them, for those people coming after him to, to live the Christ life, not just to go after God for what he can give you. And this became very troubling to people. And in that chapter, John chapter 6, he talks about how he is sovereign over the hearts of men. And it caused angst and grumbling. And it caused people to walk away from the guy who just fed 5,000 people out of nothing and walked on water. And in John chapter 6, verse 66, it says, after, many, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? In verse 68, Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. At the end of these ten days, I want us corporately as a church and individually as homes and people come to a greater understanding that Jesus alone, not his gifts, not the comforts of being an American in 2010, but Jesus alone has the words of life. 
One of my theological heroes is a man named Charles Spurgeon. He passed church back in London in the 1800s. And this is what he said about fasting in his church. He said, Our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle, which was the name of their church, have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gate stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer the central glory. A man named Joseph Wimmer, who wrote a very helpful book on fasting called Fasting in the New Testament, said this. Listen to this. This is important. And I end on this. The weakness of hunger, which leads to death, brings forth the goodness and power of God who wills life. Here there is no extortion, no magic attempt to force God's will. We merely look with confidence upon our Heavenly Father and through our fasting say gently in our hearts, Father, without you, I will die. Come to my assistance. Make haste. Help me. Father, without you, we will die. We desperately need not the manna of our culture, but we need you. You are the sustainer of our lives. This morning I read in my devotions in Psalm 3 that you are our glory and the lifter of our heads. God, as we now prepare to receive the communion meal where we remember Jesus' broken body on a cross and spilled blood on our behalf, would you give us the kind and unusual grace to be able to see that what sustains us is the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus, this little chip of bread and this little cup of juice which symbolizes the bread of heaven. Would you help us realize that you are our life, not our stuff? God, would you help us realize, as Jesus said to the tempter in Matthew 4, that man does not live by bread, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, Lord, lift our heads above the clutter, above the current, above the riptide of a malnutritious, broken culture that, if we're not careful, can suck us out to sea. Thousands of miles away from where we thought we'd be. Full of selfishness and idolatry and longing for creature comforts. So help us today by your Holy Spirit not to gin up some religious effort so that we can be proud and say, God, we did this now. What are you going to do for us? But to reveal to our hearts our desperate need for you. And to set aside our hearts because these are big days. We're off to a good start as a church, but we can't just do this. If we keep just doing this, we're going to be missing you. And so, God, we've got to make some moves. We've got to make some big moves. And they're not going to be easy moves. They will be opposed. They will be, they will be attacked. And, Lord, we, we have to be ready for that. And we have to graciously receive suffering and trial as the providence of God to test us and to glorify Jesus even in our trial. And we can't do that 
While we're feasting on this culture, we need to feast on you. And so as we take this little humble meal of communion, as we go into this week, begin to prepare our hearts so that we would long for the bread of heaven and not the bread of this world. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.